0: Good evening. Welcome back to Historical Light, an independent Masonic show focused on the historical events and aspects within Freemasonry. As always, I'm your host, Brother Alex Powers, past master at Gardner Lodge. I want to welcome you guys back. We also have with us our co-host, Brother Robert Marshall. Uh, Brother Robert, if you go ahead and introduce yourself.
1: Greetings, folks. Uh, glad to be back here on Historical Light once again, and now that I'm a permanent fixture, I guess I'll always be here. <laughs> past master of uh, Waco Lodge, and uh a crazed historian. So very excited for tonight's topic.
0: Thank you for joining us again, brother. And our special guest this evening is none other than Brother Angel Millar. Uh, brother Millar, if you go ahead and introduce yourself.
2: Sure, well, thanks very much for inviting me on. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Do you want me to say more?
0: Oh <laughs> sure, what's your, what's your Masonic background?
2: <laughs> oh, <clears throat> sorry. Oh yeah, so I, was, uh, I became a member of the craft in uh, 2001. And um, I'm mostly known for writing books on Freemasonry. So,
0: good stuff. Yeah. Well, brother, we uh, really appreciate you coming on the show this evening. Uh, lucky that I've been able to be a friend with you for several years now. We met up for the first yes. time up at uh, Masonic Con in uh, in Attleboro. There. Yeah,
2: that's right. That's right. We did. That's right.
0: Yeah, we had some uh, very lively conversations and kept up with your work since then. Uh, you do some ma- amazing stuff, so we really appreciate you having on or having you on the show. Um, what's been going on with you lately? How's how's the craft in life?
2: Uh, good, busy. Uh, I was in um, Los Angeles about two weeks ago, speaking at the Masonic Con there, oh, uh, yeah. which was a which was a great event. Uh, I was incredibly busy, but they they, they did an amazing job, uh, South Pasadena Lodge. It was an incredibly busy time, but uh, just packed with uh, speakers and movies and different things going on. It was, uh, it was a tour de force of Freemasonry. That's awesome. Yeah. I was keeping yeah.
0: up with that over social media. It looked like quite the event.
2: It did. Yeah. Yeah. And it was good to connect with, uh, you know, many of the brothers that you would know, uh, Arturo Timothy Hogan and many other brothers from around the uh, from around the U.S. were there, which was uh, it was great to see them.
0: That's awesome. So yeah. we've got quite a few of these uh, Masonic conventions popping up all around. Uh, Brother Robert has yeah. got one down in Texas. Your way too. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you guys think of these? Are, are they a benefit to the craft?
2: Uh, personally, I think that it's been an, an enormous benefit to the craft, and I think you know largely because it's uh, members. Um, Taking uh, taking the initiative and, and putting on events, the kind of events that they want to see and want to participate in, and uh, are not waiting for the grand lodge to uh, to do it for them, and then complaining that it's not what they wanted. So I think it's uh, I think it's been an enormous benefit, and I think it's probably bringing in uh, or helping to bring in, you know, guys that are more in, focused on the historical and the esoteric as well. So I think that's a plus. Agreed,
0: uh, brother Robert. What's what's been your experience with uh, Masonic cons or conventions of sorts? I'm very much
1: in agreement with uh, Angel uh, to piggyback on the last thing he said there. I actually think they're kind of an answer to a uh, unfortunate trend of Grand Lodge communications getting away from having done these kinds of things in the past. Uh, if you look back into the history of the fraternity. The Grand Lodge sessions often included the kinds of things that are happening at these Masonicons now. Uh, so um, uh, I'm, I'm glad to see them coming back. And hopefully, I mean, who knows, in the very, very early days of Masonry, back in the operative days, skipping out on a convention was up, uh, included the penalty of death if you didn't have a good reason. So uh, you never know how, how serious these guys will take these things.
0: Good point. Good point.
1: (laughs) No, really. I I really enjoy them. They're really great. Uh, This last one down here, uh, there was a variety of topics. So there were some very, very, very esoteric things. Uh, uh, Kabbalah and stuff like that very much was the theme of one brother's presentation. Then you had uh, Brent Morris uh, present on... uh, statistic trends in american freemasonry over the last hundred years what we can get from them and where we're going with them what we need to do about them all that kind of stuff uh look at the numbers which is something that is kind of popular in masonry but also kind of really unpopular so it was an interesting uh presentation and uh some just general or not general uh some pure history of topics so there was history of the early ritual in texas how it kind of developed and got formalized uh original for the first 20 years or so texas masonic ritual was completely based on jeremy cross's uh hieroglyphic chart so uh how we emerged from that and established our own kind of flavor of masonry Uh, as well as uh joseph wages uh did a topic on the actual Illuminati from Bavaria, who they were, what they were, what they did. And of mm-hmm. course, uh, he worked on that documentary that just came out last week with uh, uh, Johnny Royal as the yeah. uh,
0: main guy. Just released, I, yeah. I have not seen that yet, but it looks like uh, quite the show. I really enjoyed the first one, the 33 and Beyond. Uh,
2: mm-hmm. so
0: looking forward to getting a chance to sit down and watch that. Have you Either of you guys been able to see that film yet?
2: Yeah, they actually played it in the uh, as part of the Los Angeles Masonic Con, and it's actually on um, Amazon Prime as well. So it, it's well worth watching. It's it's really good.
0: Very nice. Yeah. We'll have to check that out. Well, Brother Millar, uh, again, we appreciate having you on this evening. We got you on to talk about a pretty cool topic, Um, actually an upcoming book you have uh, that is The Three Stages of Initiatic Spirituality, Craftsman, Warrior, and Magician. Uh, So Brother Millar, if you don't mind, we'll kick it over to you and let you lead off this discussion.
2: Sure. So uh, you might want to ask me some questions just to get things going. But um, yeah, so uh, my next book, which, which will be out in um, February 2020, so a little less than six months, uh, it looks at the, um, the initiatic process through the craftsman, warrior, and magician. And um, so, the craftsman, so the craftsman section is focused largely on alchemy, uh, Kabbalah, and Freemasonry. Uh, the warrior section looks largely at uh, the martial arts, uh, as well as uh, the, the warrior in mythologies in Buddhism and so on. And then the magician covers a, a pretty wide spectrum, from uh, uh, sort of the, the ancient um, sort of t- types of magic all the way through to, um, let's say, more sexual type magic like tantra, uh, and then all the way up to uh, the modern positive uh, thinking movement and. "Quote unquote chaos magic," which will probably be the one of the latest uh, development. All the developments, although that's about 40 years old right now, so maybe a little more sure. than that. Yeah. So I,
0: now I would start off, if you don't mind, because when we get into such topics, we get a lot of guys um, that don't really, I don't know, flow that way. Um, I'm very much an esoteric-minded person, so I'm right there with you. Um, but for the people that, you know, think Lodge is just Lodge and take it at face mm. value, um, where do we see the stuff coming into the craft um, versus, you know, making it what we want it to be? Where where do we see uh, the magic um, aspects come into the craft of masonry?
2: In terms of historically or... Yeah. Um, well i mean i think really that influence comes in mostly during the 18th century when freemasonry spreads to france and germany in particular because there you you start to get the higher degrees being created and uh, a lot of them are based on or at least influenced by uh, rosicrucianism hermeticism alchemy uh, christian mysticism um, and so on. And so the, probably the best known example uh, would be the Rose Square Degree, which is in the uh, Scottish Rite today, but <clears throat> pretty much every single right uh, within Freemasonry, and you know there, there have been many of them throughout the ages, uh, has had some form of Rose Square Degree. The, the Rites of Memphis and Mithraeum have a Rose Quar Degree, for example, although they're considered irregular or clandestine. Um, but the, the rose Quar degree is partly uh, influenced by Catholicism and partly influenced by uh, Rosicrucianism. And hence you have the, the, the cross with the rose in the center, which is a you know, pretty standard uh, Rosicrucian symbol. And Rosicrucianism is a kind of um, uh, Christian mysticism that draws on sort of ancient Greek mythology or Neoplatonism and on uh, alchemy and hermeticism. So it would be mostly during the 18th century that you get this kind of um, uh, coming into Freemasonry. Uh, I would say probably the the distinction between Freemasonry and um, an occult order today that might be influenced by these same things. It might be influenced by Freemasonry as well. Um, such as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn or the Ordo Templi Orientis, is that um, <clears throat> uh, typically in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn or these other uh, orders that are, that are still around, um, you would be given some kind of uh, occult teachings. It might be uh, the, the tarot or how to uh, summon spirits or how to uh, contact some kind of uh God form or, or working with some kind of inner energy, uh, and we really don't find that in Freemasonry at all. It's, um, it's it, the, there's a big distinction between uh, those different types of orders, I think. Uh,
1: Angel, uh, I've gotten to talk with you about this a little bit before, mm. and uh, uh, I know. I guess my greatest exposure to this kind of stuff is uh, the Masonic Magician by Bob Cooper, Kaleostro, the Egyptian Rite of the 1700s. Uh, I know Kaleostro very strongly argued uh, that it wasn't so much that this stuff was coming in to Freemasonry in the 1700s, but that it was coming back. However, of course, he had a personal, potentially had a personal reason to say that. He's the guy uh, sharing it with people, so he may have wanted to convince people that it was coming back instead of coming new uh has your research uh suggested one or the other i get you're saying here it it was introduced in the 1700s is that fair
2: yeah yeah i think it was introduced during that time i mean there are a couple of little tiny little references uh before that during the, the the 17th century if memory serves me correctly but these are sort of uh like often kind of comedic little references like the Freemasons mm-hmm. and the Rosicrucians going to dinner together and eating uh, eating a phoenix and this kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, in some local paper somewhere. Um, but uh, c- serious references tend to come in during the uh, 18th century or after. But um, But, you know, that's not to say the Freemasonry doesn't have its own sort of mystery or even its own kind of mysticism or what some people might call gnosis or you know esoteric or mystical knowledge, uh, you know if you look at the old charges, uh, these are incredibly strange uh, mythologies. Um, <laughs> they go back all the way to around 1400 AD, um, talking about how geometry came to uh, England from, you know, Egypt and ancient Greece. And it's influenced partly by, uh, you know, the, the myth of Pythagoras and other other curious, um, there are other curious things in there, maybe uh, Stoicism as well. And this idea that the world will be destroyed by fire or, or by flood and this kind of thing. And, um, you know, and Freemasonry really develops this ritual, of uh, three degrees out of uh, you know two degrees earlier on which were in a much more um, primitive form it has to be said but but they're in embryo more or less but um, you know it creates something that's absolutely unique I think and um, you know uh, it's interesting that Alchemy or hermeticism or, you know, later on Egyptology or something like this as an influence on Freemasonry on the higher degrees. But um, to me, I think that uh, in a way the craft degrees are quite possibly more interesting, especially when you take into account what was going on before that, such as the old charges, is really this really strange and enigmatic um, thing that I, I don't think you can find elsewhere very easily. But it's, you know, 600 years of or now 600 years of, uh, of this uh, development, which is a very slow development, but it, it creates something truly, I think, unique. Mm-hmm.
0: So this, this book, um, looking at it here, it covers, looks like the initiatic experience of the exposure mm-hmm. to this. How important um, would you say these aspects that we're talking about, these esoteric aspects, um, are to the initiatic experience itself?
2: Right. Well, initiation really is the esoteric. Um, I mean, initiation literally means to begin. So you could, you could see it in a more uh, profane way that you're, beginning something, but in terms of a kind of masonic initiation, it is uh, fundamentally the sort of penetrating of the esoteric, uh, of an esoteric understanding. And, um, you know, esoteric means the, the inner, um, and typically in society, of course, let's say if we went back 100 or 200 or 300 years, uh, you would have the exoteric or the outer, which would be the religion. Which, in in this case, would almost always be, uh, would have been Christianity, and uh, if going back three centuries, maybe a, a few dais and a, a few uh, Jews, but other religions come in uh, later on, if, one, if you want to be historically accurate, really, at that time in England and in London, you know, the people that were joining were Christians. Um, and Christianity and, of course, society as well, has its um, esoteric, un- uh, exoteric understanding of morals and how we should behave and, um, and what the religion means. And then uh, the esoteric is the inner understanding. Um, and you can't really have one without the other. So there, there is a danger in overemphasizing the esoteric. But in terms of, uh, of initiation, yes, I mean, the whole, the whole point is to penetrate into an esoteric or inner understanding.
1: Wonderful. So I know we're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but uh, when I was (laughs) getting a degree in literature, I was specifically told by a professor, always judge a book by its cover. You can learn something Uh by Uh the book's cover. Uh, So we're looking at yours. And uh, (laughs) as uh, somebody who spent uh, uh, a lot of time working on a Leonardo da Vinci anatomical book, Mm. I'm fascinated by uh, the uh, appearance of what could be seen as a Vitruvian man. Uh,
2: yeah, 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 that's right. Why would you choose that
1: to represent the initiatic spirituality?
2: Yeah, well, actually, I didn't. It was okay. uh, designed by the publisher, but but I quite oh, like that's it. So it's, yeah, it's not what it's, I wouldn't have thought that up, but I, I'm glad the uh, the artist did think it up because I think it's kind of an intriguing image mm-hmm. and um, for those who haven't seen it, it's this man with an outstretched arms and legs and uh, this kind of energy is pouring into him it seems and then around him are the various circles and in three of the circles are the alchemical elements for um, sulfur, salt and uh, mercury uh, which again you could you could liken these um, um, to to the uh, to the craftsman, the warrior, and the magician as well. And, uh, yeah. yeah, and um, you know, very briefly, and uh, of course, this won't be entirely accurate because there are other ways you can see it. But the soul is the, the 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 preserving nature as what well, preserves and fixes, and uh, sulfur is um, essentially what uh, corrodes or burns away or destroys. And then uh, the mercury is sort of fluid, and it's often associated with um, with uh, some consciousness as well. So, but you could you could look at those in uh, the craftsman being perhaps sword and um, uh, the magician being mercury. That's a pretty typical association, mm-hmm. and uh, the warrior being sulfur as well. So it's this kind of um, uh, structure runs through throughout the book. Okay. Yeah.
0: So, Brother Angel, let me ask you this. With, we get a lot of people watching the show and in the group and everything Mm. that are in different stages of masonry, get a lot of people that aren't even in masonry yet, but Mm. are just interested. Um, Who would you say this book is best targeted to? Is this something that a non-initiated person would gain something from? Or would it be most appropriate to kind of have the insight before delving into something of this nature?
2: yeah that's a that's a great question um well so free Freemasonry actually uh, factors in uh, in a, quite a small amount in the book it's probably a few percentage although it's it's mentioned mostly in the first section on the craftsman for obvious reasons um but uh and it's mentioned occasionally later on but uh, it's 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 a, it's um it, it's a very small part of the book Although you, from another perspective, you could see that the, the whole book is related uh, related to Freemasonry as well. So the, the Craftsman section could relate to the uh, uh, Blue Lodge degrees. Mm-hmm. The Warrior section would relate to the you know say Templar degrees, and uh, the Magician maybe to the some aspects of the Scottish Rite, but also to the uh, Societas Rosicruciana as and so on. Um, And then to these other orders that have been influenced by Freemasonry, although are not Masonic per se, such as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. But um, the book is also kind of structured as a kind of um, literary initiatic experience as well. So each section has the same number of uh, chapters and they uh, follow in a particular order. So one one section will deal with the, the history. And symbolism of say the the craftsman or the warrior or the magician and then uh, a later sections will look at the ritual and then um, And then a final section looks at more practical aspects that are related to uh, to each of these so um, meditations practiced by uh, the warrior or by the magician and so on.
0: Very, very cool. So you said this is expected to come out 2020 correct.
2: Yeah, February 2020 Awesome.
0: So let's see here. Once this, once this book comes out, um, who do you initially address this to and how do you get it out there? Do you do a lot of lodge talks about this or what is your primary market with it?
2: Um, Well, in regards to who it's uh, probably going to appeal to, I would say, Clearly, uh, Freemasons, but I think um, you know mostly men, uh, given the uh, warrior aspects. I'm sure there are some women that would be interested in that. But I think overwhelmingly, that's going to mean it has a, a male audience. Um, many of them will not be uh, Freemasons, but I think probably. Typically, it's going to be men who are interested in some kind of uh, self-development, uh, maybe with an interest in the esoteric or the occult, but maybe with an interest in, let's say, mythology and self-improvement in other ways, such as weightlifting or martial arts. Uh, so I would say that would be the, the primary uh, audience. Um, in regards to getting out there, I probably w- – We'll we'll be doing some large talks, and I'm sure I'll be speaking uh, different uh, Masonic events uh, around the country next year. And uh, I have my own own, uh, YouTube channel as well now, The Spiritual Survival, and I'll probably be doing quite a few interviews on the subject as well. So yeah.
0: Very, very cool. So yeah, you you do have this new uh, YouTube channel going, and you cover mainly this topic, correct? The esoterics and spirituality?
2: Yeah, it looks a little bit at different ways of um, self improvement in general. But uh, yeah, Freemasonry has come up uh, a few times, and I'll be uh, giving some more talks on Freemasonry and esoteric aspects of Freemasonry, and um, and just uh, maybe a little lesser known aspects of the uh, of the world of the esoteric in, in general as well.
0: That's awesome. So how is how is that show going? How do you uh... How are you enjoying it so far?
2: Uh, so far, the response has been pretty good. Um, and I'm enjoying it. I get to talk about things that I'm, I might not necessarily want to write about in an article, and I can speak a little bit more freely. Right. So that's, that's all good. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's always nice to be able to kind of, you know, like we're doing here to sit down and hash mm-hmm. it out, be able to have that direct conversation. So yeah, that's awesome doing that, man, because yeah. really have some phenomenal stuff that you talk about on a regular basis. So
2: Great, uh, thank you. Yeah,
0: it's awesome to be able to sit down and have that chat with you. Now, one thing I was looking at within, uh, within the confines of your new book, um, you mentioned uh, the connection between the, the Sufi Muslims again. Um, you talk about that quite, um, quite often in a lot of your material, I notice. Um, how did you come by uh, the connection between uh, the Muslim world and uh, the initiatic experience?
2: Yeah, so my previous book, *The uh, Crescent and the Compass*, uh, was on the um, was a historical uh, examination of connections between Freemasonry and um, Islam, or more correctly, between certain sort of radical um, uh, radical Freemasons who are interested in the esoteric and spirituality. Uh, sometimes in quite extreme forms and between um uh Muslim uh thinkers that again were uh at the let's say at the cutting edge of uh, of um Islamic politics, uh, mostly from around eighteen fifty to around nineteen twenty or so. Um but it wasn't it wasn't uh something um that I necessarily uh planned to write about, at least to such uh Uh, such a degree but uh, when I started looking into it I found more and more connections that I'd never heard of and um, it surprised me but uh, didn't didn't shock me I sort of suspected some of the individuals I write about um, had had such a connection uh, Henry William Quilliam in England. He was one, an early convert to Islam in England. He was a, you know, a white British guy who converted to to Islam and became very um, important in promoting um, a friendlier face of Islam to the British public and in uh, advocating for the rights of British Muslims or Muslims under the British Empire, I should say. And uh, to all intents and purposes, you know, he looks um, like a, uh, sort of strict uh, Muslim Um, he was uh, funded partly by the Ottoman Empire this is around the 1890s a little bit before and after but uh, when you actually dig more into his life you know you discover that he was a a very active Freemason and he was also in the uh, Swedenborgian right of Freemasonry and then he founded his own uh, order called the ancient order of Zuzinites which was uh, very much based on Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. But so sort of drew, drew in this. Um... Egyptian mythology which was then so secularized uh, presumably because it would be um, the the sin of uh, the sin of polytheism or the sin of shirk according to Islam if he were bringing in these actual deities so he he actually turns it into a kind of secular mythology but you find these curious connections between Islam and Freemasonry all over the place uh, from around 1850 uh, into the early 20th century. So in America as well, you have um, you know groups like uh, uh, the the, the uh, Nation of Gods and Earths or uh, the Five Percenter movement, and uh, they have a catechism where they refer to uh, Freemasons as um, Muslims' sons, um, and you find this uh, this weird connection between Freemasonry and Islam as well in the, in the Middle East um Jamal Adin Al Afghani who was um possibly the most uh, influential political uh muslim of uh of the um uh, of of the last 100 or so years um he uh, he was uh he was he joined freemasonry in egypt i think around the 1850s or 60s 1860s and it was very active in um in freemasonry in egypt in egypt but um he is known today as uh, really the grandfather of islamism uh he he was He was the person who came up with the idea of a pan Islamic ideology that you would unite the uh Muslims around the middle East to push out the uh, the western forces that were occupying much of much of the uh, middle eastern uh land at that point. And, uh, you know, so you have these intriguing uh, connections uh, really across the globe for quite a significant amount of time. And um, it's kind of curious that we are where we are today and yet uh, for all the books that have been written on Islam and maybe even for all the books that have been written on Freemasonry, you know, virtually nothing has been written on this subject.
0: Right. Now, yeah, it's interesting. So you you touch quite often on on the connection there. but I believe today it's, it's kind of frowned upon in the Middle East, is it not? Mm,
2: yeah, very much so. Yeah, and um, a really unfortunate uh, chapter in this, uh, this uh, history is that uh, Fre- Freemasonry is often uh, used uh, or spoken about in the most extreme forms of uh, Islamism and Jihadism. Um, it's been mentioned in uh, Al-Qaeda's uh, material and so on. Really? And, um, yeah. And, um, you know, uh, the thing to realize is that 99% of the time, they actually don't know what Freemasonry is. Um, they're using it. They use the term Freemasonry in a very specific technical sense. And it's the same uh, in the same way that uh, you hear the phrase um, Zionist uh, entity mm-hmm. to mean Israel. So, if you look at jihadist material, if they're talking about Freemasonry, 99% of the time they're not talking about the fraternity. They're talking mm-hmm. about uh, the influence of uh, of America and, to a lesser extent, the influence of other Western nation states on on the Middle East and on Islam or on Muslims today. And um, well, you know, we're all we're all aware of the use of the term Crusader. Uh, so obviously, when a, if a jihadist or a, you know someone else is talking about the Crusaders, they're talking about say American military power today, or mm-hmm. maybe Canadian or British military power in the Middle East, because they're the invaders with the weapons, so they're the Crusaders. But when they talk about Freemasonry, typically they're talking about the inf- of a, a cultural influence on the Middle East. So it's it can be anything from. Um, Uh, Alcohol to uh, democracy or voting, to women's rights, to Pokemon Go. I mean, it it spans a really wide spectrum. Um, But they're really talking about uh, a cultural influence that's unwelcome that they see as being imposed on the Middle East and on uh, Muslims. So that's what 99% of the time when they talk about Freemasonry, quote-unquote, uh, that's actually what they're talking about in in this world of jihadism.
0: Interesting. It, there's there's
1: there's a subtle difference I've seen in the uh, colloquial use of the word Freemasonry. I think that's what you're getting at here, Angel. In uh, that when they they use the word Freemasonry, they they may not necessarily be talking about the fraternity, but that kind right. of uh, uh, influence from the West that's being rejected. And so there, I've seen them use the word. In the way you're saying, I think the most important word in defining it for them would be pervasive. So what we're talking about is Is a word Freemasonry being used to represent the symbol of a pervasive influence from the West. And yeah. interestingly, here in the West, we do have a colloquial use of the word Freemasonry that I think is similar and there was probably some kind of connection early on and they went their different paths in the East and West and the West. Freemasonry has been used in colloquial language. I, I don't think many Freemasons use it this way because we see it differently, but uh, lay people, if you will, uh, the profane, will refer to Freemasonry when talking about a uh, uh, just kind of a shared sentiment among people. So they might call it the Freemasonry of, uh, oh gosh, the Freemasonry of actors in Hollywood, uh, and, and and they're referring to a kind of shared experience among those people uh, it doesn't have the negative connotation it does in the Middle East, which is really important, but mm. interesting the way both of them kind of work their way into
2: language yeah yeah yeah
0: indeed so I notice another part that you touch on within uh within the book is uh is Crowley um, to a degree yeah. so Without going uh, too far into you know, revealing the book, um, what, what is your take on Crowley? I so many people have so many different uh, interpretations of his work and his life. Mm. Uh, how does he fit in here and, and what's your overall thought process on
2: him? Yeah, well, my overall uh, assessment of Crowley is that he's a complicated uh, figure <laughs> <Yeah>. and, uh, <laughs> and you partly have to see him in, in his time. And um, he did many things that were unwise uh, to get himself some publicity, uh, in many cases. Um, And um, we now, in the West, have a a, a kind of cliched uh, image of Crowley. And he's typically associated with, you know, the dark and the satanic. And even those uh, devotees of Crowley who would, you know, deny anything satanic about him, and um, nevertheless many of them you know would dress in all black and would associate themselves with a rather dark uh, imagery and dark things. Um, Crowley himself I think was a much more complicated uh, person and, and in, in many regards was kind of a brilliant individual and um, you know when he was a uh, college he Practiced boxing. Then he was uh, practicing a uh, mountain mountaineering, um, and that alone would be interesting. But you know, then he became a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and started practicing magic. Later on, in um, in Mexico City, he was initiated into uh, irregular Freemasonry, and. Um, you know was clearly influenced by freemasonry although he wouldn't he wasn't in a in a lodge that we would recognize as regular uh, nevertheless you know he he was to quite a, a large degree influenced by his experiences of freemasonry but um you know beyond that he was of course an author mostly of uh, books on magic or the occult but uh, you know he wrote some fiction as well uh, he wrote poetry and um you know, beyond that, he also uh, he also uh, was a, at least for a time was a, a fine art painter or an artist, um, mostly in in Germany. And um, you know, had this very wide range of interests and practices. And um, you know, was uh, somebody who pr- w- travelled all over the world. You know, literally everywhere from the middle of Canada to the Himalayas. And um, when really virtually no one else was doing that at all, uh, had a significant, uh, very serious interest in religion. And, um, you know, did some quite curious uh, quite curious things in that regard. And one of them being he wrote his own um, pseudo-Sufi text, The Scented Garden of Abdullah. And, you know, he's also claimed to have uh, had this sort of, sacred text revealed to him as well, Um, whether you believe that or not. And again, coming back to his art, whether you think that it's great art or poor quality art, I don't think it really matters, actually. I think what's important about Crowley is that he was somebody who was, uh, you know, always prepared to try something new and to throw himself into it, whether it was riding, mountaineering, boxing, painting, or traveling the world. And, you know, he was, he, he was a highly controversial figure and still is. But, um, you know, nevertheless, uh, there are many people that could take on all of that.
1: You and, know, um, that, that, uh, that understanding of Crowley as a guy who's, Always Ready for More uh, calls to mind a quote from one of his uh, followers uh, post uh, his life, but one of the more well-known and well-read uh, Crowley enthusiasts. Robert Anton uh, Wilson uh, once said that uh, the true initiation never ends. Mm-hmm. Do you think that would be in line not only with what you're saying about Crowley, but also your book, The Three Stages of Initiatic Spirituality? Do you, do you kind of uh, uh, get at this idea that we're always pursuing initiation.
2: Yeah, well, I think that's right. The, the true initiation does never end. And uh, I'm sure you've had this experience where you'll read a book, uh, say at uh, one point in your life, and it won't really mean much to you. And 20 years later, you go back to it. And you, it's just a total revelation. And you, mm. you can't You can't believe that you didn't see anything in it before, you know and um and if you read it again 20 years hence you'll find even more in it as well so, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah and and that is the esoteric right that's literally what it is that mm-hmm. you read a book you think is one thing and then you have life experience and after 10 20 30 40 years you can read it on uh, so much more of a a, a more subtle uh, level and a more penetrating level mm-hmm. And uh, that really is the esoteric. It's penetrating into those depths, and, and that definitely never ends, yeah. yeah.
1: Well, then I would I would think that in, in that sense and within that context, your book is really uh, making perhaps the most important argument Freemasonry could have made right now in that, uh, in, in looking at the history of Freemasonry, I don't know that the initiation experience in Freemasonry had ever become so... Uh, little valued as it has over different parts of the last hundred years and even fairly recently Mm -hmm. where it's become so common for a guy to get initiated uh, and then just enter into uh, fellowship and never leave that fellowship uh, that it just becomes a fraternity Mm -hmm. in the social sense and there's still there's no further development of the study of the arts and sciences, for example, Mm -hmm. or uh, just that initiatic process, what you're saying here is we need to extend our initiation.
2: Yeah, well, we definitely need to extend our understanding for sure. And um, yeah, I think, you know, there is this weird thing in Freemasonry where in my experience, the vast majority of Freemasons have a real interest in Freemasonry and in symbolism and mythology and so on, mm. and um, but they're all kind of a little bit shy about mentioning it, yeah. which is weird. But I think it, you know, my guess is that it it goes back to you know the the various wars of the 20th century where after World War Two, or maybe World War One, or after Korea or Vietnam, you had this influx of guys who were more interested in the fraternal aspects, you know, socializing with other guys. And then, you know, the, the men that were really were interested in the symbolism and ritual and mythology that stuck around for decades uh, when the other guys probably left, mm-hmm. um, you know, they became a, a little too nervous to speak up about it because all the other all the other guys that had joined just wanted to smoke cigars and have barbecues and drink cognac <laughs> or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. I'm not knocking that, but um, yeah, I think that's pretty what it was. But I, you know, I sometimes give this um, uh, tell this story about when I first joined Freemasonry, and um, you know, I had this experience like most people, and most guys, in most lodges, and uh, especially at that time. And every month, uh, there would be some talk, Uh, most of them, one of them was on men's health, one was on tax law, one was by a a fireman, and this kind of thing. And, um, you know, it was okay for a few months, I didn't mind it, it was kind of interesting. But, um, you know, there wasn't a single talk on Freemasonry. And I'd only been a master mason for maybe Six months when I gave my first talk, but I, you know, I, I approached the uh, the master and said, "I want to give a talk on Freemasonry," and uh, I did. And you know, I was very inexperienced, so I, I didn't want to talk about uh, Freemasonry per se. So I spoke about um, uh, about uh, certain historical aspects and spiritual aspects. Uh, within uh, British um, history from around the twelfth century and uh, until later on they 're related to freemasonry hmm. um, and then I, you know I can make comparisons without making any kind of historical claims but just pointing out these sort of interesting connections and philosophical connections and um, but before I gave the talk my my friend in the lodge uh, the the guy had become my really my best friend at the time. Uh, who later dropped out as a very intellectual guy. But he said to me, you know, look, we haven't had a talk on Freemasonry in years. Everybody's going to love it. He said, "But there's one guy, you know who he is. And he comes and he makes stupid comments and he makes stupid jokes and he makes wisecracks every month. He said, look, he's he's probably going to fall asleep. He's going to hate it. He's going to be bored. But everybody else is going to appreciate it. So just ignore him because, you know, everybody else will be there for you. That
0: guy's a (laughs) member of your lodge too then, huh? (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah well so anyway this did this, he surprise you well so this guy was in probably in his 60s at the time he's an old guy you know making the wise cracks whatever so anyway this guy i've been warned about he came up to me after the talk and mm-hmm. to paraphrase he said that was great and we need more of that mm-hmm. and wow. the question is you know not really uh why has he been there for, for 40 years But why has no one thought to themselves, this guy's been coming for 40 years. Mm -hmm. There must be something that interests him. Is there a way we can engage that? So he's not acting like a stupid kid because it's clearly because of boredom. He's not getting what he thinks he should be getting. And, you know, other people came up to me after and said, oh, yeah, I'm really into like mythology. Like it was some big secret. Everybody has this big secret. They all are interested in the same things, but they don't (laughs) want to say, I mean, this was this was nearly 20 years ago. But, you know, so, um, you know, I think it's a problem in writing lodges often thinking that they don't have any interest in this stuff because typically, um, typically, at very least, they have an interest in mythology or self-improvement mm-hmm. or something along those lines. I mean, I would say that there's a danger in talking about the esoteric because a, a lot of the ways uh, that people people talk about it is to get very technical about some aspect of let's say the Kabbalah, and then what Hebrew letter should go on what mm-hmm. what sphere and this which mm-hmm. path joins. And to be honest, that's that's of interest to maybe five percent of uh, yep. brothers, and everybody else is just thinking, I I don't know what this means, and I don't know how this relates to my life. And I think if you are going to talk about the esoteric, you really want to try and relate it to people's lives. And this is why it's important to you and not to go off into these flights of uh, fantasy and trying to show how clever you are. You want to be talking with your brothers, not at them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that that's been a problem as well, that, that when they have got to talk about the esoteric, it can be so complicated and often there's some kind of agenda that the speaker mm. wants to show how smart they are or they have some secret historical family connection because they're from scotland their family and there's some connection to scotland or whatever wherever it is i've heard of all kinds of theories <laughs> but uh, you you know often or from what i've seen in the past maybe not so much now there's been some kind of agenda with it so this is also um you know that's also going to Make people not want to hear about those things, but I think you know in the last few years, especially with the Masonic that now there's a, the way of talking about it is much more engaging. It's we're talking together. It's not the speaker talking at you. It's we're together discussing mm-hmm. this, uh, this 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 uh, field of interest, and it's relevant to your life because. And I think that's a better approach. Mm-hmm.
1: I'd, I'd be inclined to agree with you. I know uh, when I give a talk, and somebody refers to it as a lecture, whether it's beforehand or the remembering, I'll always stop and be like, ah, eh, didn't I didn't lecture? We we had a discussion about a topic, uh, and I just happened to be the person that was leading it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, on the flip side, recently uh, I was at an event, and uh, this brilliant, brilliant brother. Uh, and if he watches this, he's going to know who I'm talking about. And and so I want to preface it by saying. I love you, man. I love the research you do and the knowledge you share. Uh, But uh, he got a little carried away one night uh, in a group of maybe 20, 25 of us. And right in line with what you're saying, he started telling guys that if they weren't if they weren't masters of the Hebrew language, that if they if they don't know Hebrew, uh, then they're just wasting their time with Freemasonry because you need to know every letter of Hebrew. And you need to know what each one means and what it means when they're together or else you're just, you're just operating without the knowledge you need. Uh, and it was, it just went a little too far. It got a little too carried away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, it's easy to fall into those traps.
2: Yeah, apparently it is. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but getting back to uh large education, let me, let me just say in my lodge, and I think probably other lodges are the beginning this, uh, you know, when, um, when a, an Ended Apprentice goes through the uh, ritual or fellow craft, or especially with the Master ma- newly made Master Mason, um, they are asked to give some kind of talk on uh, some aspect of Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. And for the first two rituals, it can be very like short, just five minutes about well, what was one thing that interested you, and then the Master Mason talk is uh, longer. And I think that that's actually what you need, because you need to get guys into the habit of of talking and expressing themselves in front of their brothers, so that they're not afraid to say, "Actually, this is what interests me, and I'm going to give a talk about it, and make it interesting to you," um, because otherwise, you do get this like weird um, sort of pressure where everyone wants to conform to the lowest common denominator. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's definitely changing, and that's a good thing.
0: Yeah, totally. So random thought crossing my mind as we're going through all this. Um, now we had mentioned Crowley just a little bit ago. And while we were going through that, the number one thing went on in my head, you know, through my research with Crowley, um, he was very interested um, within the confines of Freemasonry and stuff. But I'd say the difference we saw um, is Freemasonry and, and like practices really preaches the fact of balance. Uh, mm mm-hmm. Whereas Crowley really decided to take one side and go as far as he could with it um, to the extremes. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, within that in mind, and the concept of balance, um, as we talk about the initiatic experience, especially here uh, discussing the craftsman, the warrior, and the magician archetypes, um, for someone coming in through that initiatic experience, how important is it uh, in your terms uh, to consider the balance um, there Mm -hmm. within?
2: Yeah, well, balance is essential, um, and pushing through uh, is also essential as well. You don't want to remain at this sort of beginner level. Um, I think the the problem that Crowley had was that, you know, he had an extremely uh, strict and fundamentalist uh, Christian upbringing. Um, the very few people, even in the, the Bible Belt, would, would would have such a strict an authoritarian uh, upbringing, as Crowley experienced, and he completely rebelled against it. And um, um, and then the question for someone who's practicing the esoteric, or he was practicing the occult, but let's just say the esoteric, is that the um, the, uh, the esoteric, the inner, requires the exoteric or the outer. So that's the balance, right? Mm-hmm. So you have the idea of like moral behavior and a standard of behavior and of way of treating people, but then you also have these, uh, sort of more mystical experience or symbolism that takes you in a more mystical and metaphysical direction, uh, but that's balanced by the, the morals, the acting in the world, and Crowley's problem, of course, was that he had rejected, uh, this sort of exoteric upbringing that he had, and uh, the Christian, um, religion and and um, just the, the way of behaving in uh, in British society at that time, so then you you 're left with this sort of very radical esoteric view where you 're just going to push yourself into this more and more sort of mystical and even occult direction, and cruelly, I suppose you could say try to sort of rectify that by having, you know had this this revelation um, this sacred text revealed to him allegedly, and that 's what he claimed. And so with this sacred text, you have some kind of semblance of, of behavior in the world, Now, whether that's uh, in line with Christianity or opposed to it, it doesn't really matter. But, but there's some kind of notion of how you should behave in the world, and it's not just this ending up in some kind of metaphysical mental space. And um, I think that's a problem in in the occult world and the esoteric world more broadly that we've rejected the exoteric we don't really know how to behave in the world at all and um so consequently a lot of people who are involved in the esoteric or in the occult um are very dysfunctional in the world and they look very dysfunctional and they they can do things to actually harm themselves in the world so they make themselves more ugly or they would behave in some Converse with people unless it's about the uh, about the code or something like that, and um, I think Freemasonry handles that well by the fact that Freemasonry does uh, give you this way of behaving in the world. So you want to mm-hmm. be supportive of your, of your brothers, but you also want to be a good citizen, a good member of your society. You want to be supportive of your family. If you're going to be in a social event, you don't want to be drinking to intemperance or excess you don't want to be getting drunk and acting crazy so there are these this this exoteric understanding of okay this is how I this is how I behave in the world uh, you know because I want to become this kind of higher man or what the Confucians call a Tzu, the superior man or for women the superior woman but at the same time there's also this metaphysical framework of um, of 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 thinking about God, of thinking about what's beyond death, and so on, and these symbols that seem to have some kind of mystical significance. Uh, So Freemasonry has a much better balance of the two than than other societies might. And um, uh, you know, you could say with even with uh, you know traditional co-orders of the 18th or 19th century or maybe even early 20th century that there was someone kind of understanding that you would have some kind of moral framework and then you mm-hmm. would move into this stuff. And, um, uh, but today, of course, that's not the case. You sort of rebel against society and you focus on the occult and that's very unbalanced. And it's very, it's not, uh, it's not what you would find in any culture at all. So even in, you know, in, in, um, uh, you know, India or China, you might be practicing some sort of esoteric uh, tradition, but you also adhere to uh, the, the standards of society in most cases. Oh, in Sufism, let's say, that's probably a better example. If you're a Sufi Muslim, a traditional Sufi Muslim, let's say, then um, sure, you have these um, mystical experiences of m- meditating on Allah, but you um, uh, and some of some of the uh, symbolism of uh, Sufism, this uh, this use of uh, uh, alcohol as a metaphor in Sufi poetry. That would seem to be against the society, or at least the societal norms. But it's uh, it's a it's an esoteric understanding of of uh, of the exoteric religion. So if you're a Sufi Muslim, a traditional Sufi Muslim, you also adhere to the, the religion of Islam, and you practice the Sharia, the Islamic law. So these things work together, right? You don't, you're not rejecting the exoteric. You're deepening your understanding of it. And because you have deepened your understanding of it, of course, from an outsider perspective, some people might say, whoa, that's going a bit too far. I don't really get that. But you yourself don't don't find any contradiction. You
1: you struck on an interesting chord for me with that. So uh, this idea that Freemasonry was bringing in these people who had some kind of basic foundation already. Uh, you called it a moral uh, training, I think, uh, but the shared experience that they already had when they, when they showed up at the door. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's demonstrably true uh, mm-hmm. across the centuries until maybe the last hundred years and increasingly we've become yeah. a much more secular society and uh there's re- really not that exact same shared moral background uh so now freemasonry may be struggling to uh re-identify itself or figure out how do we bring these guys together now that they're not showing up at the door with the same background mm-hmm.
2: uh, yeah Yeah. Well, well, again, I think the Freemasonry is better able to handle this than some Mm -hmm. other, let's say, uh, esoteric orders in that it does give some kind of moral foundation, right? So no getting drunk, trying Mm -hmm. to be a good citizen supportive of your family if you have a religion go to church or synagogue or temple whatever it is so so the so freemasonry does have both the exoteric and the esoteric the inner and the outer so i think that that's helpful but um but yeah that's that's uh you know one thing you should bear in mind if we're going to promote the esoteric is also you need this foundation and you Mm -hmm. shouldn't you shouldn't run away from the exoteric that's For many men in particular, that's going to be more important than the esoteric because many men get no uh, guidance growing up at all, either because their father is that, you know, the family, the mother and father are divorced and the father lives somewhere totally different. They never see him or maybe he's in jail. Maybe he's some kind of addict. Maybe he's at work all the time. Or doing something else that makes him unavailable, or maybe he's just emotionally unavailable. Um, you know, I don't know about America so much, but I think um, the the first and second world wars uh, damaged the male psyche a great deal and made the uh, one generation just really, uh, or one or two generations, really unable to connect with uh, the, the later generations because yep. they had fathers that were totally, you know, shell shocked by the war and. Unable to relate to anything, let alone a child. So, so um, you know, although we want to emphasize the esoteric and the metaphysical at the same time, we also want to emphasize the, the basic training that uh, that a man or, or would get in society because that's what a lot of men really are missing today. So we want to we want to be brothers and give uh, just practical guidance as well. so.
1: That's what many men really are missing today. There you go. Yeah. I think the historical lens you've just provided us, Freemasonry becomes more important to the mm-hmm. advancement of society mm-hmm. uh, and for answering the questions young men have maybe than, than it ever has been.
2: Uh, yeah. Which
1: is a good answer when guys ask, well, why don't young men care about Freemasonry anymore? The answer is we just haven't done a good enough job of, uh, ourselves understanding that Freemasonry does provide what you're talking about, and then once we understanding it, once we understand it, making sure that the rest of the world can understand that mm-hmm. they can't yeah. come looking for it if they don't know it's there.
2: Right, exactly. Yeah, and I think uh, Freemasonry has always uh, provided some kind of solution for society's problems not as a whole necessarily but you know you think mm-hmm. about uh, the 18th century when there was maybe a, an overemphasis on rational thought mm-hmm. and Freemasonry really exploded in popularity at that time not by promoting the rational but pr- by promoting symbols and mystery and the mysterious and the spiritual and the supernatural, even in some rights. And then if you look uh, later on with Prince Hall Masonry, uh, Prince Hall Masonry was extremely influential in uh, in, in the after slavery in, in promoting the self esteem of African American men and really getting um, uh, helping to, to, to helping them to achieve in, in society. And then you know after you know World War One, two, Korea, and so on. When when men maybe were sort of shell shocked by these experiences, nevertheless they could go to a lodge and and uh, be around brothers who were supportive. So Freemasonry is always being able to respond to certain problems in society, and um, maybe that's caused problems within Freemasonry on, in the long run. Sometimes with the, you know mm-hmm. with an overemphasis on uh, you know. On the fraternal aspects and not enough on the more esoteric aspects. Maybe other times it's been reversed. But today, suddenly, you know, we do need to be mindful of the fact that um, a great many men are just not receiving any guidance. And uh, with that, have whether they were, would admit it or could admit it even to themselves, you know, have. Issues with low self-esteem and uh, fear of uh, how to behave in society and how to get on in the world, and um, yeah, that's certainly something the Freemasonry, by its very nature, addresses. Because you know, once you join, you know, we're all brothers together to be supportive. You know, not necessarily financially supportive, but to give you the you know, you know, the wisdom that we've acquired, or uh, some kind of um, you know, emotional support or something like that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And just, you know, as an, an example of um, of men behaving well, you know, hopefully in every lodge, um, and um, when maybe the, the men they've grown up around have not behaved very well. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah.
0: That's great. Well, brother, I want to kind of start wrapping things up here. But with that, with this book coming out, what would be the main message that you would like to get across to those who read it. What's what's the main thing that you want to hit them?
2: Yeah. Well, you mentioned balance earlier, so I would say in that regard. Anyway, maybe I would say something different uh, at another time. But but in regard to balance, certainly uh, the the book emphasize, emphasizes you know developing the mind, uh, developing some kind of spirituality, but also developing the the body as well physically. So you want to you want to develop all these aspects of yourself, and not just overemphasizing one aspect, which is always uh, dangerous, actually.
0: Very well said, totally agree with you. Well, let's move into closing arguments or closing statements, so to speak. Um, Brother Robert, do you got anything uh, for Brother Angel as we wrap this up?
1: Uh, I've been uh, absolutely blown away. I've talked with you before, Angel, I'm always impressed, but you you really, really spoke to a lot of my personal experience and, and, and a lot of the experiences I've heard other guys describe, uh, especially guys my age. I'm, I'm 29 years old, so I'm, I'm one of those young guys in today's generation looking for something, and it turned out to be Freemasonry that I was talking about before. Uh, but I'll just uh, I'll close out with a question, and uh, if you could, in as few words as possible, just uh, would you answer the question? uh, uh what does initiatic spirituality offer to the young guy who picks up your book tomorrow? Why, why does he want to pursue initiatic spirituality?
2: Uh, mm. To discover who he is.
1: Mm. Okay. Excellent, thank you.
2: I like that,
0: I like that a lot. Uh, Brother Angel, what would your uh, closing statements be?
2: My closing statement? I haven't prepared one. <laughs>
1: Oh, dude. <laughs> what? Remember initiation never ends. he's not gonna That's have right. a great statement it just it's yeah. forever now
2: yeah, so um well, um, I don't know, I have to think out of something off off the cuff, but uh um I would just say uh in in regard to freemasonry um let's let's definitely perform the esoteric and let's let's penetrate into the mysteries but let's not also uh let's not forget forget the practical side let's be there for our brothers guiding them in the, the more practical areas of life Let's not not getting drunk being supportive of each other being a, a decent person in society as well uh, let's ha- let's have that balance and then i think we'll we'll do well
0: well, I would in, uh, entirely agree with you, and I got to kind of write it there along with Robert. Um, you totally touched on a lot of those aspects for me tonight as well. Um, you know, being able to find that stuff in Freemasonry has really uh, just made the difference in my world. Um, so kind of everything you touched on there really hit home. Um, the balance aspect, I think, is huge, um, but also to actually go for it at the same time. I, I see mm-hmm. so much in masonry today that's just kind of um, floating by, so to speak. Um, a lot of guys don't don't push that esoteric, that deeper level, um, and it's more just a, a membership thing. So find that balance, but at the same time, as you mentioned earlier, Angel, push through, um, because if you don't go for those aspects, you're really missing what masonry or um, any of these orders have to offer on their deepest level. Um, so don't take it for granted. Um, there's definitely something there and it's worthwhile um, seeking it out. Um, mm-hmm. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, definitely. And uh, let me just say one last thing in regards to what you just said. Uh, you know, if if, uh, if a brother does have an interest in, uh, let's say, the esoteric or spirituality or self-improvement, um, you know, I would say don't wait for somebody else to give the talk to you. Uh, why don't you write a write a, a short talk and give that in large and I'm sure it would be appreciated. And you'll get as much out of it as everybody else, if not more. So, you know, yeah. let's, let's take the initiative. And let's make the lodges what we want them to be instead of complaining that they're not what we want to be.
0: For sure. For sure, and you know, I'll put you on the spot here, brother Angel, because I do got a lot of admiration for you, man. When we first met um, that evening, I I don't know if you remember the crazy ride we got lost there and everything, but uh, we got in these conversations and kind of brought up some stuff about life, and uh, so you know, I think at one point you started talking about some things I'd like to improve, and immediately you offered up mentorship there, and not just to the point of a slick conversation, but you hopped on the phone with me uh, within a week or two. Right, that's
2: right, yeah, yeah. Um,
0: So I just wanna give you mad props there um, because I really appreciated that. That was taking um, not just masonry or friendship as we know it, but taking it to that next level, which not a lot of people do anymore. Um, So when we talk about this stuff, people, just take it to the respect that um, brother angel is one of those guys that knows what he's talking about, not just knows it, but also acts it out. Um, So I think there's a lot to be said there and, uh, just that uh, I really appreciate your friendship and your mentorship in those ways, brother.
2: Likewise, um, likewise. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Stanley, appreciate having you on the show this evening. It's always a pleasure to hear what you have to say. Um, you're just an inspirational guy all around. You've got some uh, some great material to put forth, and uh, just so so thankful that you are taking the time to present that to the craft as a whole. Um, before we close off tonight, though, I want to give a chance uh, for you to. Um, put some plugs in of where people can get a hold of you and your materials and the show you got going on. Because um, mm-hmm. I, like I said, you have some amazing stuff out there. We want everybody to have the opportunity to get proper exposure to it. So how can people get a hold of you and find your materials best?
2: Sure. So my website is angelmillar.com. A-N-G-E-L-M-I-L-L-A-R.com. And uh, the YouTube channel is uh, just called The Spiritual Survival. And there's also a uh, website, the, the spiritualsurvival.com as well. And, and the, uh, the book, uh, The Three Stages of Initiatic Spirituality, will be out in early February 2020.
0: Wonderful. And what is going to be the best platform to find that book? How's, how are we going to find it when it comes out?
2: Uh, it's going to be on Amazon and it, it'll be on all of the, the main uh, websites like that. And you um, can buy it through Inner Traditions already, I think, pre-order. So.
0: Sounds good. Well, we will definitely have those links listed below. Uh, so make great. sure you check those out. Uh, visit Angel. And uh, if you've got any other questions, definitely hit him up. Uh, he's a great guy to talk to. But keep an eye out for that book. Again, that is The Three Stages of Initiatic Spirituality craftsman, warrior, magician. Uh, It's going to be great. I'm definitely intrigued. Robert, are you intrigued? Very, very intrigued. All right. Well, I think it's going to be awesome. Cannot wait for it to come out. Brother Angel, thank you again so much for being on this evening. And with that, brethren, we will see you next time. Please check out the Facebook group, the Historical Light Masonic Research Group on Facebook to continue the conversation there. And with that, we'll see you all next time. Keep preserving the light.